Helper Show. On today's episode, I play a few interviews. First, I play an interview I did with Ali Vargas, a journalist based in Bolivia who writes for Kosachun Coca and Kosachun News. Since interviewing Ali, it's been announced that Evo Morales will return to Bolivia on November 9th, the day after Luis Arce is sworn in as president. Then I interviewed Joshua Khan Russell, a social movement facilitator and the executive director of the Wildfire Project, and a nonviolent direct action coordinator with the Ruckus Society. He's going to be talking to us about a project he's involved in called Choose Democracy. Then Leslie Lee, the host of the Struggle Session podcast, joins me and Josh for a bit, but you can hear the rest of my chat with Leslie Lee, as well as my chat with Isha Kurshaswamy at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please rain review the Katie Helper Show. So, Ollie, thank you so much for coming onto the show. No, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's so good that there's media attention on this issue at the moment. Yeah, no, uh, I think that that people are very excited about this. I have so many questions to ask you. Tell tell us what's been happening lately. Um, you've been attacked, right? You were physically attacked. Um, can you just set the scene in terms of how Bolivia got to the moment it's gotten to? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, not like not like starting with um, like colonialism, but I guess starting with um, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Let's just read the open veins of Latin America. I can try. Right now. I can try. Um, yeah. But uh, no, starting with I guess Morales, uh, Evo Morales' ascent. Yeah, I mean, the movement towards socialism uh, is the party that Evo Morales built, and there's a is an organization that grew out of the struggle in the Tropic of Cochabamba. That's where I live. Actually, not where I'm right now, but where I live is the known as the Chapada region against the U.S. military presence there, the DEA, USAID, and a number of bases there. Um, and how that struggle, uh, led by Eva Morales and a number of uh, incredible women leaders who you know played leading roles in the last government, um, and they sort of through that process, they decided that, you know, we as indigenous communities, as workers, we shouldn't be constantly on the offense, on the defensive. We shouldn't just be complaining about this or that human rights abuse or uh, this land has been, I don't know, taken or contaminated, um, you know, and, oh, isn't this sad? And we should do something about this X, Y, Z issue. Actually, we should move beyond that form an organization capable of taking power and not as a party that will go and represent us of, you know, good people with good politics, but actually ourselves, a political right. instrument for our movement to govern the country for ourselves. That's the only way the, the, the situation, there can be a solution to the situation. Otherwise you're constantly, you know, with the sort of NGO model of, right. you know, making complaints about X, Y, or Z issue. So it grew out that struggle. Then, they uh, went to the rest of the country, proposed the same. All the other sort of indigenous groups, workers' unions around the country affiliated to it. And that's what the mass is today, is a coalition of these social movements, of these uh, indigenous groups. And I said before, the mass is not a political party in the way uh, you or I might understand in, in the US or the UK, it's not a party that you go, yeah, it's not a party you join as an individual. It's actually impossible to join as an individual. You can only join it through being part of a social movement. And that's the strength of the parties that exists as, you know, not an agglomeration of individuals, 
but as a coalition of a number of different movements that have a physical presence in every single region of the country. So are you a member of it? Well, technically, um, no, in a sense. As an individual, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a member of uh, any particular union. I mean, I work right. for Radio Kalsachunkoka, which is actually the station that's owned by the six federations of the Tropic of Cochabamba, which is the unions there. It's the unions that Eva Morales led, and he's still the president of, so he's technically the president of the radio. So um, I'm attached to the movements in that sense, um, but as an actual political actor, uh, absolutely not, because I'm not, I'm not part of these movements. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. Okay, but you're a member of the, like, so you're saying it's not like here where they're Democrats and Republicans and you register, right? Is it, um, so what are the parties in right now? Because there's the, what the, the Christo fascist one, which is not its official name, right? But there's, <laughs> and then there's like a more moderate opposition and then there's the Christo fascist one. So, um, if you vote, for instance, you just vote for whomever you want, you, Ollie. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You want. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you mean, when you say it's not like, do you mean like the leadership has to be attached to a social movement or do you mean rank and file people? Well, essentially, there's no formal membership. There's no list of people who are in the party. If okay. you are part of a union that is affiliated to the party, you are part of the party, even if you don't support the party. <laughs> but right. Through right. your collective affiliation, you are considered part of the organization and you'll be asked by your union, by your social movement, to participate in the party activities, to be at rallies, to, to organize rallies, um, to mobilize in protests uh, during this past year. And so it's like it's a collective thing. It's not an agglomeration of individuals. It's a collective uh, force that exists at the grassroots level right across the country. And so, so um, Evo Morales is elected and there's a lot of progress, right, in terms of poverty rates. Um, but he obviously makes a lot of enemies. And then there are these accusations of corruption. So can you walk us through that? Because obviously, as I'm sure you're all too well aware, the media narrative from the Western media was very skewed um, about there being a case for his you know, dismissal. Yeah, well, I mean, if anything, the Western media coverage has almost been a bit better than the Bolivian media coverage in Bolivia. Right. Every single media, private media outlet that exists is aggressively anti-Evo anti Morales. But while he was in government, there was a couple of state media outlets that presented the government point of view. Those have, of course, now disappeared. Um, so there's been an incredible media war. And in fact, it was only through the media war that the coup happened in the first place. Because what we before the coup, the only reason that the military was able to intervene was because there was a situation of chaos in the country. Right-wing protests in all the big cities, well, not all, most of the big cities, completely destabilized the country, created violence and chaos, military steps in. But why were people protesting? The objective reasons for people to protest you know, around the world didn't exist in Bolivia. The economy, Bolivia was the fastest growing economy in South America. People weren't going hungry. There wasn't any inflation. Bolivia had actually the lowest inflation in the region, hovering about 2% per year. You know, it was, these weren't bread riots. These right. weren't uh, uh, 
all of the normal reasons that people would come out onto the streets weren't there. So why would people come out? Because there'd been a relentless, relentless media war portraying the government as this like awful Castro Chavista sort of narco state. Um, and there's things that didn't that didn't exist in reality. So a lot of the accusations, um, a lot of the reasons people, these right-wing protest movements would give, like, oh, Bolivia has become a narco state. Actually, the reverse is true. Since the DEA was expelled from Bolivia um, by the in the Tropic of Cochabamba, the production of the coca leaf went down because well, this, the new the new anti drug strategy of the government was to work with the unions, the, the coca growers unions, and uh, sort of through a wider economic development, people were no longer dependent on growing just coca. Now, if you go to the Tropic of Cochabamba. It's it's wonderful, you know. The, it's where I've lived for most of this past year. You have the most amazing fruits, uh, fish. People have sort of uh, sort of pools on their sort of small pieces of land where they have a, a thousand fish. That's you know that's a huge source of income. But before that didn't exist, the state couldn't afford to fund this kind of alternative development because it's a neoliberal state dependent on the IMF on debt, and so people turned to just growing coca as the only thing that they could earn a living with. Um, and the, the response of the U.S. government to that was just to repress them, to take away their livelihoods, destroy their crops, uh, jail, um, torture anyone who spoke out against that. And all of that, all of that just served to increase production of cocoa because people became more poor. People right. wanted people turn to these sorts of activities through the economic development under Evan Morales, thanks to the nationalisation of natural resources and uh, strategic industries, they were able to fund that. Because if you're in a government like Bolivia, it's a global south, third world government, where does a government get money? It, does, it can't get it from taxes because uh, the vast majority of the population don't pay any taxes at all. They work in the informal economy. Right. The rich people in Latin America, first of all, are not even that rich compared to rich people in the US or Europe. And they, you know, very easily take their money to Miami or wherever, right. Panama more recently. Hmm. So how does the government get money to fund anything? They can only do it through taking control of natural resources. And not just resources, but uh, big industries, um, Bolivia, telecommunications, airports, a number of manufacturing industries and nationals as well. Run them efficiently, take the profits, and use that money to fund development in your country. And that's what Bolivia did, and that's why Bolivia was was so successful. Even the IMF, uh, the Financial Times, the BBC would talk about the economic miracle in Bolivia. And there's no magic formulas to that. It's just the formula that I've uh, laid out. But of course, um, that that whole model is a threat to the United States. If everyone starts doing that, then then they're in big trouble. Right, the domino theory, right? Mm, exactly. Um, that Eisenhower warned us about. Um, uh, and and so, what were you there during the coup? I was not. Uh, I was in. I was working at Telesur in Ecuador, actually. Uh, my colleague, uh, many viewers may have heard of her, Camila Escalante. Yeah. She actually came to Bolivia during the coup while the coup okay. was taking place, uh, and and she was the one that encouraged me to come. Uh, oh, just okay. after I arrived, like two weeks after the coup. And where are you from, by the way? Because you have that thick Bolivian accent. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I have a dual nationality. My mom is from the UK, uh, and my dad's Bolivian, from yeah. uh, from the north of Potosi, 
uh, historic mining area. Right. And um, yeah, I've uh, I've I've both nationalities. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 a fun mix. And you grew up in where where you grew up? Well, actually, I lived here in La Paz till I was five, um, and then we went to the UK. And I've lived there for for, for most of my life since then. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember a great deal from when I was five, but right. what I do know is that, uh, like most Bolivian children, I got uh, a number of diseases, and through that, through surviving that, we've got a great immune system now. So we've never been ill since. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. so then, when did you go back to um, from England to Latin America? Um, well, I've been uh, in and out for various periods. When I was 18, I came for six months. I worked at a, a magazine, an English language magazine about Bolivian cultures called Bolivian Express. It's a great project, still going. Um, and then I came back sort of as a in sort of exchange. So I did a semester at a university here in La Paz. Um, that, that was quite an experience. They certainly work a lot harder than British students. I had three-hour lessons. The classes would start at 7 a.m. I certainly will not what I was used to at British University. Right. <laughs> but right. yeah, that's fun. And now, now I'm back working. I live in the tropical Cochabamba. But at the, at the moment for this sort of election coverage, I'm, I'm here in La Paz, yeah. How shortly after the coup were, did you go to Bolivia? Uh, two weeks. It was two weeks okay. after the coup. Yeah. And so what, what was it like uh, then? Well, I mean, before then, I was... I assumed that I would never come to Bolivia when the coup happened. Um, I saw the sort of the levels of persecution, the massacres, uh, the threats I was receiving, even out, when I was outside the country, even some of my own family members were sending me some pretty brutal things, telling me, oh, come here and then we'll teach you, we'll teach you to learn respect, blah, 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 blah. Um, even former friends I had in the past sending me sort of threats, even violent threats on Facebook. And I assumed that I would never come to Bolivia, that it's too dangerous uh, while this current government was in power. But it was actually, yeah, it was, it was uh, Camilo Escalante um, uh, who convinced me to come. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked back since and I hope to, to make a life here. <laughs> and so what was it like when you got there? I mean, what kind of violence did you observe or um, uh, persecution did you experience or observe? Because I don't think well, people I, have a, I don't pe think people have a sense of what it was like. Um, yeah, it was people. I think here. I mean, not people watching the show, but I think in large, like the larger American audience, uh, thinks like, oh, there was a corrupt guy, a left wing dictator, and then they kicked him out, and then there was a like a non socialist in power, who happens to carry. Yeah, it was, uh, but, yeah. It, it was an extraordinary time. And actually, the 14 years that Evo Morales... Bol Bolivia, throughout its history for 100 years, has been one of the most unstable places in the Americas. He's had, I think, the most presidents of anywhere in the Americas because of the number of coups, revolutions, just like general chaos throughout history. Uh, I mean, there's presidents that have been in power for like a few weeks, you know, before being ousted in a coup or in a revolution or something. But the 14 years of Evo Morales' government was... First of all, it was the longest period with a single government. No part of Bolivian history had there been one government for more than more than about ten years. Um, Evo Morales achieved that extraordinary social stability, um, but all that just just 
kind of dissolved, disappeared in a few weeks when the coup happened. I mean, people's houses, like prominent leftists, their houses were getting burnt down. Um, people being attacked in the street for wearing blue clothes. Blue is the color of the mass, the party. They get assaulted. People indigenous in any way would get assaulted. Just assume that they're a mass supporter just because of their because of their race um, or cultural sort of clothes. That was the atmosphere. Um, and sort of a week, the first 10 days of the coup were the worst. That's when the two massacres happened. When people came out to protest to bring Eva Morales back uh, in Sacaba, in Cochabamba, and here in Sencato's El Alto of La Paz. Um, overall, during that period, like 34 people were, were killed by the state um, while going out to protest. Uh, that was the atmosphere. I arrived just after these like sort of peace accords had been signed between the social movements and the state. But so I wasn't there during the period of this sort of mass outbreak of violence. What I was here for was the second phase of, uh, of repression, which was the sort of political persecution. So what happened after the massacres was they targeted uh, union leaders, sort of prominent leftists. They were sort of put charges, given charges for things like sedition. Actually, I'd actually never heard of the word sedition before I came here. But wow. um, sedition for sort of, for not recognizing the authority of the state, that's a criminal offense. Um, people were charged with that. For terrorism, I mean, for things like organizing a rally, that's considered terrorism. Uh, and so the people I was interviewing at the time, the people that had these criminal charges hanging over them, some of them had arrest warrants. And the day I arrived, um, I met up with a number of friends that I had here who ran a, a left-wing radio show, um, and which was taken off air after the coup. And then a week later, after I saw them when I arrived, arrest warrants were out for them. They said that their radio show was a form of terrorism and that they said seditious things. They were inciting people to sedition. Even though the radio show actually went off air before the coup, like just as the coup was happening. So they, the, the radio show was never on air while the new government was in power. They said that they committed retroactive sort of sedition, terrorism. Those friends had to flee to Argentina, go on foot, you know, set to sort of be smuggled to the border and then sort of run across a river, uh, get there unofficially. They are given refugee status in Argentina. Um, and they're still there, obviously. Some of them were even, other charges were put on them. One of them was accused of burning a bus. Uh, they're just trying to throw everything at them. And that, that was the sort of uh, atmosphere uh, that I came in. Then that only got worse throughout the course of the year. So in the tropical Cochabamba, all of the leaders have numerous charges. Uh, some of the people I consider my friends now, um, who are now been elected senators, such as Andronico Rodriguez, who's like a big sort of young charismatic leader, Leonardo Losa, both of them now senators for Cochabamba. Each of them have more than, I mean, Andronico has 17 or 18 criminal charges against him right now. Uh, one of them is for sedition because he called Anya's a coup president. Um, now sedition, and he faces criminal charges for that. But you know, throughout all of that, now he's a senator, though he's elected right. by the people. And what happened to that mayor? There was that awful, awful footage of that mayor who had her hair cut off, um, was you know doused in red paint. W what happened to her? Where is she now? 
Well, it's, she's she's probably the person who who's been through the most during this past year. Um, as you said, she's a mayor of a small town called Vinto, just outside Cochabamba. Um, she was kidnapped, tortured during the coup. She was made to walk over broken glass. She was told that they were leading her to her death. Um, and they were asking her to resign, yeah, resign, but she refused to resign. Um, and she survived. And after that became a sort of figure of bravery, uh, of figure for women all across the country. Um, but it didn't end there. She, she, she was rescued from her captors. But then after the coup government took power, she was then persecuted in a massive way, probably more than any of the uh, other leaders in the region. She, I interviewed her during the campaign and she said she had 17 criminal charges hanging over her. Again, all the same things, sedition, terrorism. Uh, at one point, they even broke into a home and arrested her entire family, even her children, held them in a cell for a few days. And um, that one was, they accused her of drinking alcohol during lockdown, which is actually not even a crime. <laughs> But then um, they were released a few days later, luckily. But that's how her life has been through this past year, just constant, constant, constant um, persecution. And now she's also an elected senator. She's an elected senator for the Department of Cochabamba. She'll take her seat as probably one of the most prominent figures of the mass. And, yeah, I was speaking, actually, to someone uh, here who's good friends with her. And the night of the victory... He said that, you know, straight away he phoned her and she couldn't even speak. She was just crying. She was saying, you know, for the first time this year, I'm going to I'm gonna go to bed, you know, and be able to sleep. <laughs> That's so crazy. That's so, yeah. I'm, I, I, I've shown this before. I had, um, I had Ben Norton on before, but I just want to show people in case they missed this, this image of the woman. It's like so incredibly disturbing. Anti-government protesters in Bolivia drag woman mayor to street. So yeah, this is this is one image. They cut all her hair as well. Yeah, that was like the scariest part. Um, I showed this last time, but you can see this yeah. tweet. Yeah, and they were all masked. It's just like, it's so disturbing. Well, that's it. Patricia yeah. Arce. Is yeah, she related no. to the other Arce? <laughs> no, no, no. No, okay. No, Arce is okay. just like so common. There's like yeah. a million people called Arce. Here. This is so, okay guys, remember that woman we just saw with the red hair? This is crazy. This is her now. That's you. Oh, I didn't realize that was you interviewing her. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. De de cosas que según ellos he cometido actos irregulares, pero ninguno de ellos me han podido probar y sé que no lo van a poder. Es más, uno por atentado a la salud, siendo que ellos que han atentado contra la salud mía y la de mis hijos, entrándose sin barbijos, entrándose a mi casa, a mi domicilio, a mi dormitorio, sacando a mi familia, encesándonos en un lugar que había mucha gente que estaba sin barbijo. Ellos han cometido esos actos. Más, a mí me que sea imparcial, la policía tiene que cuidar a la población, no tiene que, no se debe a un partido político y bueno, el ejército lo propio, ¿no? Wow. Muchísimas gracias. That awful, awful footage of that, it's, I mean, that was, I think, probably the most effective, on, you know, 
disturbing image that that we that was widely circulated. Yeah, yeah. and it, it shows the. I mean, a lot of Western media outlets sort of portrayed that whole period as, oh, the people kind of rose up against Evan Morales. What people? The, those right. are the people they're referring to. That's their culture, their yeah. way of doing politics. And who who are those people? They're not the majority of the country, as we right. as we now know, obviously. But at the time, those people protesting, where were they protesting? In the city centres of the big city, right. the middle, to whiter, middle, upper class people. Those were the only people. Those are the only section of society that are allowed to be people, you know. And then when. The majority of them, the indigenous groups, working class areas of the cities came out to protest in favor of Evan Morales. They were just said, oh, the the hordes, the uh, right. terrorists, delinquents, whatever. Right. Yeah. And also what happens is that people meet real live whatever, like real live Bolivians in the United States. And they're like, well, my Bolivian friend says that Evan Morales <laughs> is a narco, you know, ter- narco uh stealing everyone's land, corrupt, whatever. And they really, like, it, it's it, it's part of, like, think, you know, white racism where it's this assumption of, I mean, not racism or ignorance. It's, uh, it's yeah. an assumption. It's like a flattening of all non-white mm-hmm. Americans. So it's yeah. like, oh, this person's Bolivian. It's like, well, there are rich Bolivians and poor Bolivians exactly. and Bolivians who are whiter and Bolivians who are more indigenous. And... It is of course, and if, yeah. Yeah. If you if you ask, uh, say, a Bolivian, someone who's gone to study in the US, that's a Bolivian who has a lot of money to do that. Exactly. Whereas if you're in Argentina, for example, there's two million Bolivian migrants in Argentina. All, almost all of them went there during the 80s and 90s because of the economic collapse after the introduction of neoliberalism. They're overwhelmingly working class people who are discriminated against in Argentina. And the recent... The election just a few days ago showed that 88% of the people there voted for the mass. So if you speak to a Bolivian in Argentina, they'll tell you something very different. If you speak to maybe a richer Bolivian who's uh, on an exchange program in Stanford or something, then they're going to tell right. you something else. Right. That's right. Exactly. That's like the really important part, right? Which is that people don't realize the selection that goes into not selection, like natural selection, but like I, there's a self-selecting process by which someone is even here, for the most part. I mean, I'm generalizing, but obviously the majority of of people who are here have more means. Um, But it gives it totally skewed. If you don't understand that, your view of it is totally skewed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I remember they did this during, like, uh, when Juan Guaido sort of declared himself yeah. president of Venezuela. Yeah. And that was a big campaign on social media. Ask a Venezuelan, you know, hashtag ask a Venezuelan. But like, right. who, which Venezuelans? Yeah. Like the ones yeah. who speak English, the ones, right. I mean, the ones in the barrios, like who, who do you mean? Yeah, exactly. exactly. What was your expectation going into this election? <laughs> Truthfully, my expectation was that by now, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be speaking to you in a, uh, in a normal capacity that we'd be in the midst of a, like a, a tremendous social conflict at this stage that could even reach levels of a civil war. Because there's a huge anxiety that there'd be sort of electoral fraud, they're trying to rig the vote. I think if the victory was very small by about one, two percent, I think they probably would have uh, tried to commit some sort of electoral fraud. But I think you can't really, it's difficult to do that with a margin of like 30 percent, you know? Right. Um, very, very difficult to do that. And I think the fact that it needed to be, the victory needed to be this overwhelmed. I mean, Evan Morales won last year by 10 percent. 
But in Bolivia sort of electoral law, you can win with less than 50% if you have more than 10%. And he won with like 10.3 or 4 or 5 or something percent. So it's very, very close. So people who lost, you know, felt that it was their opportunity to come out and destabilize the country. But with this, I mean, what can you say when you've lost by 30%? There's still some groups. Actually, just today we went out and uh, filmed some right a right wing protest yeah i want to show some of yeah a, a, a protest against the results against like the vote of the majority of people but it's, it was tiny it's maybe 50 people compared to the like mass middle class protests that were there last year it's uh it was a damp squib i'll say looking at some of your uh videos i'm is there one in particular that you think is the best to look yeah at? i mean on my personal twitter i posted two videos uh just a, a couple of hours ago of uh of the of these kind of crazy chants that they had as well, all of them like homophobic for some reason. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it was it was a cry of desperation. But you know, hopefully, it doesn't grow into something more. Right. So here's one. I can't hear. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, the second one was a bit more, it was the homophobic one, yeah. What are they, I hear Mighty Fun, but what else are they saying? Yeah. So yeah, at the start they say, if you don't jump, you're right. a mass supporter or a gay, you know, or a faggot. Right. Um, and then, well, yunko is a, is a specific Bolivian word just to mean like, you know, uh, an arse licker, you know, a boot licker sort of right. thing. They, right. they assume that like, if you support the mass, you're doing it out of some like, some sort of interest, not because you have like right. an actual conviction. Whereas actually, you know, it's completely the other way around. Like why, like, uh, there's no reason to support the mass this past year if you've been persecuted and jailed. There's no greater sign of conviction. You know? We watched the Spanish guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is the guy he, that he, I wanted to invite on. He explains why the mass won. He's um, a journalist called Alejandro Entrambasaguas who works for uh, a magazine called OK Diario, which is run by a party called Vox, which is right like yeah. neo-fascist or neo-Francoist party in right. Spain. Okay, he explains why. You've got to make this with um, subtitles so people can enjoy it. Should we yeah. want to tell them what the... You can say it while we play it, right? Yeah, yeah, we can try. Política, de economía, etc. ¿Crees que gran parte de este resultado se explica por este factor? Bueno, vamos a ver. Eh, eh, yo creo que sí. O sea, eso no me cabe absolutamente ninguna duda porque el, el votante medio de, eh, del movimiento socialismo es un votante con un nivel intelectual nulo. O sea, Prácticamente The average mass voter has zero intellectual capacity. No, no, no. Average vote to the mass. So it's, it's not like Podemos in Spain right. who are like the first right. The leftist yeah. party in Spain, right? And he's going to explain yeah. why they're not like that. Because, yeah, these people in Bolivia, they don't know what the internet is. They've never seen a phone. No sabe lo que es un teléfono móvil. No sabe lo que es internet. Y eh, mentalmente... Mentally. Eh, 
no tiene absolutamente ni idea eh, de prácticamente nada. O sea, son analfabetos que de que es, o sea, es gente... And then he was, then they're literally um, illiterate. Yeah. And then, right? I can't read and write. And As you, say, you know, there are people yeah. who don't know how to speak Spanish. Yeah. That's like my Actually, favorite. Was, it just shows the level of. They have no idea, idea what civilization is. Yeah. It's yeah, that's 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 how they think, and it just it's also just wrong on so many counts, apart from being so racist and prejudiced. Yeah. Actually, under thanks to the economic development under Evo Morales, internet and phone access has now been extended across the entire country. It exists yeah. everywhere. Um, where before it would only exist in the sort of in the circles of the big cities. Uh, the second issue of like illiteracy, illiteracy was uh, eliminated under Evo Morales' government. To to be a country free of illiteracy, I think you just have to be like more um, sort of over ninety five percent literate. I believe yeah. we achieved that under Evo Morales' government. So yeah, he had no idea about the country that he's talking about, but he felt you know the right to to come here and and just, you know be an activist for the state for 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 like most of this year but it's funny it's like he's actually like kind of pra low-key praising podemos i mean he's not praising yes. them. he's like let well, me explain yeah. these people are not like podemos well yeah because the whole sort of attacks on the left in say europe and like north america is often you know people on the right saying oh they're just a bunch of like college educated liberals blah blah right um So that's like different to Bolivia where, you know, the left is just like a bunch of savages. Right. They have to tweak their argument. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't fit. This is so exciting. Let's hear, hear, here you are talking to the, the new president, right? Let's see. Yeah. No, Abs actually speaks English. I've got some videos of him speaking English. Gran parte de la conciencia del pueblo boliviano se ha recuperado la hayu, se ha recuperado la mística del proceso y la gente ha disciplinadamente eh, ha hecho posible esto de recuperar nuevamente el proceso eh, de cambio para todos nosotros. ¿no? Es un gran agradecimiento para el pueblo boliviano. Look how uncivilized he is. ¿Cómo ha logrado esta victoria del pueblo? ¿A qué, a qué se debe? It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. No, he speaks really. fluent English. He studied economics at uh, Warwick University in the UK and I've interviewed him well I had like I've like a long interview like 20 minutes it was all in English uh, not many people I think even know that he speaks English in Bolivia yeah. and then my colleague Camila Escalante as well interviewed him in English um, and it's actually funny I also I interviewed him a second time just for like one like two minutes just like a sort of soundbite in Eng him speaking English and we posted it on the And it like went viral. The video went viral, but like all the people sharing it were Bolivians who like don't speak English. They were just like, "Wow, look, he speaks English." Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know what was being said, but they were just like impressed. <laughs> wow. Um, and what is this? Um, what's you? You tweet here. You write, "This is what Bolivians were doing in early August. The regime wasn't defeated by voting alone. People have been fighting against the coup for a whole year." And what is this image? 
this footage. So, in early August, um, there was a general strike in Bolivia because the government kept postponing the elections. And in fact, the only reason there was elections a few days ago was because of this sort of protest movement, this general strike in early August. And it got to such a, a degree that some, in some communities, people were actually getting armed. And the, the situation was getting to the point of almost a civil war. But then the regime sort of conceded, agreed to like hold elections a few days ago. And, and yeah, that's, the, that's like the process through which Bolivia, um, you know, is, is where it's at today. Without that movement, we probably wouldn't have had elections at all. These are, um, this is far-right extremist groups meet by the Christ, the Redeemer statue in Santa Cruz to decide what steps to take. Many want, uh, don't want to accept the election results. Um, what are they saying? Anulación. They won the election oh, to be annulled. Yeah, to be annulled, yeah. Oh, so I, I was thought there'd be some like Christo-Fascist stuff going on here, but I guess not. Maybe another another image. A lot of people have uh, uh, questions for you, understandably. Um, can we ask you some questions? I mean, I have like so many more. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Part one of like an, a thousand part interview. Nancy Ventura, does Ali think that this government will hold? What tricks will be deposed? Gov oh, what tricks will the deposed government try to pull? Will they be prosecuted? So yeah, I mean, that's... They haven't got a lot of options left when the the victory is so overwhelming, but I think they will try and like uh, cause a number of problems through some of these the the right wing protests that we saw videos of earlier, trying to cause chaos. Something they've they've already done is take out a huge IMF loan like the week before the elections. Three over it was over three hundred million dollars. That leaves Arce with a load of debt that he's going to have to pay off. That's you know something that handicaps the next government. Tries to an attempt to lock in the kind of neoliberal approach they've had this past year. Um, so yeah, they, they, they've got a number of tricks up their sleeves, but it's going to be difficult for them to completely annul this victory uh, without sort of launching a second coup, which of course is a possibility, but again is is much more difficult to do this year than last year because of how overwhelming the victory is. Right. Um, well, I thought it would be um, cool to, uh, if everyone's into it, I have an, two more guests, um, and I think that they, there would be some really interesting conversations, um, especially because of what they're doing. Do you have some more time for me to, do you want to mix it up a little bit? One of them is, well, I don't know how much time you have. I should ask you that first. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. Um, I can't say too much longer. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, a, sh a short sort of exchange would be, would be fun. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to bring in Joshua Khan Russell because I think this is a really interesting moment. Um, and uh, Josh is working on a project which is helping organize people to basically stop the election from being stolen. Josh, thank you so much for joining the show. So glad to be here. Tell us what, what you're working on right now. So right now, I'm sprinting, working with a project called Choose Democracy. 
And I mean, it's it's great that right now we're celebrating the victory in Bolivia and that coups are on the mind of the U.S. left because uh, we need to turn our attention towards the potential of a stolen election here. And so what Choose Democracy is trying to do is prepare people both psychologically and logistically to resist a power grab um, to res if Trump tries to steal the election. Uh, and we are using the language of coups as well um, if it comes to that, uh, which we can talk more about in a little bit. But um Really trying to, we, we formed uh, just in August, we're um, a pretty ragtag group of uh, grassroots direct action trainers that come out of a variety of social movements. We come out of the labor movement, out of the climate justice movement, racial and economic justice work. Um, and uh, a number of us have had experiences uh, supporting people in other countries resisting coups, like in Thailand in 1992, for example, and um, folks who've really studied the dynamics of coups and think that we need to build that as a framework and strategy for anticipating a lot of election chaos to come. And by the way, I feel like people may know you from uh, the Michael Brooks show. Just wanted to give that uh, context. Because someone, thread, yeah. not in the, someone who's not in the chat just texted me and was like, oh, my God, I haven't seen him since um, Michael Brooks. Well, I was on, yeah, I was on the Michael Brooks show yesterday. So whoever said right. that isn't, isn't still watching and should still watch because it's, yeah. it's still a great show, even though Michael's not with us anymore. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's and, and so my, my background is as a grassroots organizer and, and movement facilitator and trainer, um, mostly around climate work, but also supporting movements around the world. So trying to bring in those lessons for the U.S. left in this moment. I thought you may have some questions for Ali. The coup wasn't stopped, I guess, in, in Bolivia, but it was reversed. So the, the coup government tried to steal the election a number of times, but like the main uh, tactic they used was sort of hyping up fear of coronavirus to say, oh, how can we possibly have an election if there's like coronavirus going on? Deliberately didn't do anything to tackle the virus. You know, obviously bodies in the streets, people get more and more scared. And that was like a tactic they used to try and push elections away indefinitely. So I think people got to be, you know, um, wary of that and obviously coronavirus is a very serious issue it's a very serious illness have to t take care of yourself but it's, it's not a reason to suspend all public life it's not a reason to suspend you know democracy in a country you know keeping people locked at home just sort of trembling with fear is is not a good thing for people who want to you know have free and fair elections one through but, line, Ali, I'm curious if there's lessons from the ways that in Bolivia they tried to discredit the election to give the predicate for overturning it. Well, no, I mean, what they did was scare tactics. They said, oh, well, you know, um, the mass and their, their terrorists, you know, are going to plunge the country into conflict if we have elections. Uh, if they lose the elections, there's going to be a huge conflict trying to sort of build public fear about that. Uh, essentially making people fear the very idea of elections, like everything will go wrong. Everyone will get coronavirus. Like there'll be massive social conflicts afterwards. So, um, yeah, that was uh, just fear, 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 mm -hmm. fear, fear. Mm -hmm. Are there any takeaways from this that you think apply to um, what is happening here? Well, I think the in early August, as we were mentioning um there was a massive general strike, protest movements to demand elections, which was one. Um, but there was some sort of more radical elements of that movement that were saying, oh, we can just overthrow the government. 
And actually the mass and Evo Morales personally intervened to say, no, um, we can win peacefully. We can win through the vote and we have to try everything we can to do that. You know, obviously if there's reach your point where there's no peaceful path to democracy, then obviously we'll have to take more radical uh, measures. But while the, the option is still there, we should take it. But without the movement, there wouldn't have been elections. So the whole, the mass mm -hmm. as a party was founded on the principle of combining social struggle with electoral struggle, with electoral participation. And they've always said that one without the other is the path to defeat. If you're just a party that focuses on electoralism without building any kind of social organization in the ground social movements, then, well, you're a party that could disappear if you persecute a few of your leaders, you know, a party that could disappear once you fall, once you become a bit unpopular in a few years' time. Um, but likewise, if you're a party that just focuses on sort of social struggle without electoral participation, mm -hmm. then, you know, you may go the way of the, some of the guerrilla movements, maybe in Latin America, that have been locked into sort of decades-long civil wars. Um, so the mass has always been about marrying the two. Social struggle, electoral struggle. One without the other, you'll, you'll lose. I'm going to have to leave you guys now, but I hope right, uh, right. you have right. a discussion. Uh, you have to come back on. Okay. We have to do an analysis of the, the, the crying um, Camacho guy. Talk yes, yes. Uh, I would love to do that, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks no, so much, Thank Robin. you. Cheers. Great. Thanks again for coming. Speak Thank you very soon. much. Bye. Oh, I always milk my, I really, I, I'm, I have to be more disciplined. I just have them, I try to keep them on as long as possible. Okay. Well, you te teased me to get, I was, I was chomping at the bit to ask more questions about I the know, infrastructure yeah. of, in particular, the, like, what, what do the formations look like between, uh, among indigenous sovereignty movements and broad-based working class formations that are beyond that? And, and what does that look like on the ground? So let's, wow. let's have a, a part two. I'm glad you didn't have, get the chance to ask that because that's boring. Just kidding. It's very <laughs> important. It's very important. Now, I just want to get this out of the way, be transparent. Like, a lot of people in this chat are like, oh, is this an anti-Trump? Not a lot. Some people are like, oh, is this some anti-Trump guy? And yes, this is an anti-Trump guy. Um, Pro-Bernie guy. How do you want to try to reach out to um, the uh, the people who think that, uh, you know, it's a it's just a duopoly? and uh, no big difference. Basically, I'm making you do the hard work instead of, I, I, I get protective and also um, not very helpful. It's like the worst of both worlds. And I ask you to defend yourself. Um, yeah. I can just ignore, I ignore, ignore the chats because they're extremely distracting. Well, so the first question, you, you're asking me to define my politics or- well, Just give a little intro so people don't think I'm talking to someone from like, I don't know, like what? Emily's List or like, I don't know, what's some super DNC type of thing. Yeah. So my background is as, as a grassroots organizer. Um, so I've, I'm, uh, you know, have never been registered as a Democrat, except for when um, we were, you know, to vote for Bernie in the primary, of course. And um, our orientation with the coup stuff, it's not even anti-Trump, actually. It's anti-coup. So we can get more into that later and why we do that. But also my general position is that uh, as a grassroots organizer, 
um, I'm trying to choose the terrain that I'm fighting on. And if I can choose a terrain where, um, you know, I am not going to be thrown into jail for years and years and years for civil disobedience. And like, what, what, what is the ground with which I can actually uh, build social movements to win change, which is primarily my background is outside of the electoral arena. Uh, so I've only actually even gotten connected to electoral politics since Bernie opened that lane. I've, I've been a grassroots organizer since the late 90s. I come out of primarily anti-authoritarian social movements that were, um, you know, focused on really working within indigenous sovereignty movements in this country and the environmental justice movements to defeat things like pipeline infrastructure, to defeat logging corporations that are violating people's sovereignty, um, mass movement building. So in the way that the previous guest was talking about the relationship between uh, broad-based independent left infrastructure, uh, as well as the electoral work, um, my work has primarily been in the former, uh, not the latter. And so that's that's where I'm coming to this from. So you want, should we talk about this um, article that um, Daniel Hunter, who you're working with, right? He's, he's the, mm -hmm. he founded the Choose Democracy. Yeah. So he's, he's one of the coordinators, um, part of the founding crew that in includes people like Daniel and people like, you know, um, this guy, George Lakey, who was one of the coordinators oh, yeah. of Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. Um, and so we come out of a range of different movements. And um, part of, of what we're bringing to the table is having studied coups. Um, and I'm not like a coup scholar, but we have folks in our team who have been. Um, and we were we started just by assessing the terrain of the likelihood of them attempting to steal the election and how. Uh, and so there's a lot of different reasons that we felt like we need to be prepared for this. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, Trump is saying he's going to do it. <laughs> he's been saying he's going to do it for months. I mean, he 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 discredited the 2016 election and he won it. <laughs> so um, right. the, and the Republican Party has been building the legal machinery for over a year to try to take this into the courts and um, to discredit mail-in voting in order to set the predicate for calling the election fraudulence and using really extra legal means to engage in a power grab. So I, I can share more of that assessment and why, but uh, we got together and realized that, you know, we think it'd be very foolish to not be prepared to engage in this terrain uh, because we also view 2000 as a coup. And so if we remember what happened was that um, you know, the Republican Party asserted, uh, basically stopped the counting of ballots in Florida, and the Democratic Party capitulated to that when it went to the Supreme Court. And so part of our orientation is that um, if we, we can't rely on the Democratic Party to fight for even basic democratic norms in this country, and um, if, we, if, if this were called a coup in 2000, then more sectors of society might have had an opportunity to mobilize and engage uh, rather than deferring to the judgment of the Democratic Party. And uh, in doing so, you know, the, the impulse of politicians is always to try to cut a deal or capitulate. And so um, some of the scenarios that we're imagining, you know, so to be clear, when we say coup, we're not imagining tanks rolling in the streets or anything like that. We're not even really we're not even imagining a scenario in which Trump loses the election and all the institutions of our society agree that he lost the election. And then he's somehow refusing to leave office and gets, you know, the military engaged. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is, um, number one, if they try to uh, declare victory before all the ballots are counted, uh, which is likely, or if they try to stop the counting of ballots, like what happened in 2000. Um, 
Or if they go through and say, you know, have these Republican controlled state legislatures say that, well, our state seems to have voted against Trump, but we don't think those are legitimate. So we're going to, you know, offer a different slate of electors to the Electoral College. Um, and so in addition to the level of chaos that they're sowing with voter intimidation, you know, Trump is organizing right now a thing called Army for Trump. Um, and there are, you know, all across these alt-right message boards on Reddit and whatever, um, people are becoming, militia people are becoming poll workers to try to intimidate people at the polls, especially in swing states. So we think it would be foolish to not be uh, organizing and preparing and also foolish to not learn the strategy lessons from how coups are are stopped, which is, you know, the reason that we use the language of a coup is first because there are, you know, clear, we, we think the, the language of election interference or tampering or stolen election, like people are pretty inoculated against that and jaded around that. And that calling it a coup is a red line that most people in this country can get behind, but also because of its precision from the dynamics at play. And the dynamics at play from an organizing perspective are we are, it's suddenly a contest for legitimacy, right? And that, that um, if, if Trump is claiming legitimacy and Biden is claiming legitimacy, um, then, uh, you know, what is the role of both, you know, civil society, but also all these other sections of the country to swing it in one favor or the other. And that's what we've learned from other coups in the past, um, where whether it's like Thailand in 1992, Argentina in 1987, Germany in 1920, where um, it gets to that point where the, the, the move that we need to make is not protests. Like the left is, and, and to be clear, Choose Democracy is not a left project. I come out of the, the left, but we're in a place where we feel like we need to uh, defend the ground that we stand on. Of course, we don't actually live in a democracy in this country, um, but it can get significantly worse. And I'm interested in creating the conditions where I can organize to actually you know, build, build transformation. And so... Um, that's that's our orientation that well let me say a thing about why why getting back into protest mode is is not the right move is that normally as as organizers uh who believe that social change comes from below comes from grassroots people's movements our orientation is we are organizing around long-standing grievances we're building left infrastructure and we build we we pick a target we polarize a situation uh we build a base and then leverage that base through various kinds of mobilizing to put pressure on a target to win a demand but that's not the situation that we're in now if we get into the streets and just ha and if people are just protesting trump that just feeds into the existing narrative of polarization in this society. Uh, it doesn't actually do anything to change the dynamic. Uh, but instead, if we lean into the canon of what's called noncompliance, um, that so what I'm talking about is strikes of withholding labor, um, not just within the labor movement, but also you know we're working with a lot of youth organizations around student strikes. Um, we are talking about basically shutting down the country in a variety of different kinds of ways through um, occupations, shutting down corporations, highways, mail, transit, etc. And I can talk a little bit more about the groups who are starting to you know sow the seeds for that. Uh, but the way that coups are are defeated historically, um, and you know. Half of all coups since 1950s have been stopped. Uh, not all of them because of you know grassroots people power, but many of them through noncompliance, through people 
refusing to carry out the orders of the coup plotters. Unless he wins by a landslide where all of the different, you know, extra legal maneuvers that the Trump administration is, is doing can't add up to enough to overcome it, I think that we're going to be in for a long period of election chaos in, in, a, in a really fluid situation. And I think we need to be ready to respond to it. And um, that's what I think. People are so annoying with the anti Chomsky stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm talking to my chatters. I shouldn't call them annoying. But I think you can take one of them said I was, I shouldn't read the troll stuff, but one of them said I'm a neoliberal in chief's clothing, and which is fine. And then people are like, oh, it's all the Republicans. What about the Democrats? I, I, I'm not defending myself. But I am, obviously. It's like, I think I've earned it. Like, I think I'm critical enough about Democrats. I don't think I need to convince people that I think Democrats are heroes. Um, And I think that it's not like the worst. I don't know. I I don't dismiss the argument that I don't dismiss a harm reduction voting argument. Um, So I just think people can, this sounds so corny, but like, I understand people who don't want to vote or who aren't going to, but you don't have to be so annoying about it. I guess I just want to say, I come, I come to the conversation from a different vantage point because I I totally understand if people are disillusioned and like, why am I going to vote for this guy? Biden, I mean, um, I, I came up in a political milieu where I never thought that I had the luxury of ever voting for someone who represented me. Um, I always thought that, you know, these are, these are all our opponents, you know? And so I view them all basically as enemies. And, uh, if I view myself as in a, you know, uh, in a war, if I'm given the opportunity to choose my enemy or choose the battlefield, um, I'm going to do that. And that, uh, so I don't view voting as like an individual expression of my moral, you know, performance, but rather as a strategy move. And and I I also want to say on the debate that's happening right now, if I believe that we were organized enough where withholding our votes had any strategic value, I would be very excited about that. If 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 we actually had a a real labor movement that was um you know had had mass participation in the country and the various social movement infrastructure we had was enough to align folks that we actually had leverage to withhold our votes then then um that would be great, but I don't. I don't actually see any strategic value in sitting out of the election, and I'm not going to judge. Into, and so, like for normal people who don't want to vote, like okay, I mean that's whatever. That's your choice. Um, but I, I do think for people who are self-identified leftists who are politicized, who are participants in social movements, I don't know any organizers who are having this debate even. I mean, all the organizers I know is like, our movements for the last four years have been constantly surveilled, have been on defense continually. We don't have breathing room to organize uh, who, you know, the difference between a Trump and Biden administration of who they'll nominate to the National Labor Relations Board will entirely constrain the ability of labor to organize, for example. Um, And I don't want to be back in a COINTELPRO situation where we are constantly surveilled and we are, you know, there was recently the, like the extrajudicial killing of that Antifa guy in Portland who, and so, um, I mean, granted he was wanted for, for murder, but there was, you know, I, I don't want to go back to when like Panthers an were being murdered in their beds. Uh, there's, And so for me, I'm like, it, it's fighting neoliberalism versus fighting some kind of proto-authoritarianism are different conditions. But that's, I, I also want to be clear, 
I, I'm just speaking for myself now. The the Choose Democracy project is is like a nonpartisan project. It's not even anti-Trump. It's anti-coup, and um, and there's a lot more I can say about the project, but that's that's where I'm coming from with it. Yeah. Okay. Let's bring in uh, our other guest so he can also be um, uh, he can also share in this very important thing that you're working on, Leslie Lee. Hey, how's it going? Good, you. I'm good. I'm good. Really, really mixing it up. Now, do you want to share the 10 points um, that are, do you want me to open that article? Uh, I don't know that we need to do the 10, um, but, but so I'll say a little bit more about, you know, what, what we're up to, um, which is that, so we have a pledge that so far 30,000 people have signed. We're just getting going. That is, uh, includes, you know, saying we're going to participate in the process. Uh, we're going to refuse to accept the results if, um, uh, you know, a winner is declared before all the votes are counted. Um, and if uh, we're going to nonviolently take to the streets, uh, if, if, a, if a coup is attempted, and if we need to, we're going to shut down the country. And so that's using the various tactics like I described. And so um, what what we're doing right now is really trying to seed the ground for a lot of those frameworks. And so uh, there's a lot of groups that are now getting engaged in realizing that there's a real potential for this. So, for example, the Rochester AFL-CIO, the, the Central Labor Council there, um, which represents 70,000 people, they all said they were going to go on strike and that they were going to push for a general strike, which, of course, we, we don't have infrastructure for something like that in this country. Uh, However, we do think the level of tectonic shifts that can happen uh, in a situation of a stolen election um, really can create unlikely alliances and bring new people out. So uh, other examples of that are that the Seattle Educators Association just passed a resolution that within seven days of the election, if there's interference, they're going to have a work stoppage. Um, There was the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee just had a meeting yesterday that included people like the Flight Attendants Union, President Sarah Nelson, uh, to, you know, it's a collaboration between DSA and the electrical workers um, about what workers can do to stop Trump. The Detroit postal workers are now printing up leaflets with the pledge to, uh, you know, with their with their union letterhead. And the pledge is basically an organizing tool for people. And so it's fine if people in your audience don't like the we will vote part. I, I would encourage people to not get hung up on that. Um, that uh, what, what this is trying to do is be a middle of the road thing to, you know, ba- basically what we believe is in a coup scenario, if we agree that we're in a contest for legitimacy, uh, we're playing a different game than activists are used to playing. So my whole life, um, you know, I've I've been very frustrated with respectability politics. I've been very frustrated with the way that, you know, the Democrats in particular pander to some mythologized center. But in this situation, we really are trying to get an uncertain center off the fence and push all the institutions of society to delegitimize uh, the 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 outcome of of a potential stolen election, and so in that case, we're talking about um, creating a a mass framework that can be inviting to as many people as possible um, to stand up for some basic red lines. And the hope there is that if if we get here, and and I'm not claiming that we're it's 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 definitely going to happen, uh, but I am claiming that it would be silly to not prepare for it. And 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 if we do get to a point where there's that level of chaos happening and more people in this country are forced to fight for even the basic modicum of, of, of democracy, um, that it, it's an opportunity to keep 
organizing. So, you know, and, and that's another lesson we learn from other countries. Like, you know, so in, in Argentina, when they defeated their coup in 1987, they had been having all kinds of, of coups since the 30s. Um, once that happens, not only did they have civilian rule ever since, but the infrastructure that was built through mass noncompliance, through people refusing uh, to uh, legitimize the would-be coup plotters, through people uh, choosing democracy, so to speak, that created enough infrastructure that then they started pushing really hard and gave way to all kinds of resistance to later stages of uh, neoliberalism, resistance to the IMF, the reclaiming of factories and collectivizing them, et cetera. So it, it, it's an opportunity to revitalize uh, a mass, a mass orientation in this country. And so we're, we're in collaboration with all kinds of different groups that are working in swing states to do things like, you know, um, show up to polling places where there might be voter intimidation from proud boys or militias or whatever uh, to, you know, especially in like working class black neighborhoods in Florida, for example, there's groups like the dream defenders uh, who are working in a coalition with with Sunrise uh, to do that. So there's uh, a lot that's unfolding. And so when people sign the pledge, they get plugged into um, there, there's, there's opportunities to do training. So we're, we're training thousands and thousands of people. There's, we're doing several, we have eight more trainings before the election that are all like, you know, there's zoom training. So you can participate from everywhere. And it's, you know, part of what we're trying to do is psychologically prepare people to say like, yeah, it can happen here. They're like, get rid of this, you know, American exceptionalism, kind of idea right. like we and 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 that is rooted in our politics of like we don't really live in a democracy and so we need to find the the um leverage points that we have in order to increase our sphere of agency because the thing that they want most is for us to believe that we don't have agency right mm -hmm. um well let's we got a nice comment from clement cole Shout out to everyone on the show also love josh's take on voting is about choosing your enemies i'm stealing it Take it. Yeah, take it. So are these training meetings about how to sign the pledge? No, no. <laughs> um, so it's it's uh, most people who go to the trainings have signs the pledge. And so they're everything from like direct action planning to, you know, de-escalation training. If you're facing violence from right wing militias to some historical yeah. uh, education about coups uh, that have happened elsewhere. There's also like movement stories. You know, one of the lead trainers is like a grandpa who is, is um, you know, it, it's experientially based. It's data driven and um and and we're also you know people who sign the pledge where we have an action hub and we also are listing lots of other trainings there's a lot of different groups right now doing trainings the movement for black lives uh, ecosystem is also doing similar trainings around the country that we're amplifying there's a group called the blackout collective that's doing it um there's a group called shutdown dc that is doing trainings almost daily uh, to, you know, shut down all of Washington, D.C. Uh, through direct action. Um, and so it's uh, it's 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 learning these tools. It's learning these skills. Yeah. I mean, I think let's see what let's see what this pledge is. Let's see. Uh, we will vote. We will refuse to accept election results until all the votes are counted. We will nonviolently take to the streets if a coup is attempted. If we need to, we will shut down this country to protect the integrity of the democratic process. So, Leslie, here's my challenge to you. Ready? Yes. Are there any of these? Now, it's not going to count because to do to get credit for the pledge, you got to do all of them. 
But I'm just curious in principle, are there any of these things that you would pledge to? That I would pledge to? Oh, I can yeah. refuse to accept the election results in, until even after all the votes are counted. I still <laughs> want to. So you're going to take it. You're actually more hardcore than Josh. Oh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just saying, Josh, I'm tell I want to help you pitch this to various, you know, this is how you get the Leslie block. How would we describe the Leslie block? <laughs> uh, you know, you got to I'm just saying that some people won't want, may not want to full, full, you know, full hog sign the entire pledge. We're, I'm just going to assume a coup, a coup has taken place regardless. Doesn't matter. And then we do our yeah. own coup and that's how that works. <laughs> so you're yeah, you're almost. Yeah. You're coup normative almost. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. My 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 pitch is also it's fine if you don't like all parts of the pledge. I think I said this before, but it, it's not a left project. So if 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 you're gonna look right. at the project trying to poke holes from a left perspective, right. it, it is a popular project trying to win uh, a majority in the society. And if you believe that that leftists have a role to play in actually learning how to connect with regular people and um, bring that organize them and learn how to mobilize and learn the mechanics of street mobilization in various kinds of ways, that's the reason to plug in. It's not because, right. you know, and, and there are plenty of left groups that are preparing all kinds of election resistance. This is not, this is not a project of like a self-identified activist fringe. This isn't the place for, you know, if that's not what this project is. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting and important, you know, it's, it's funny because obviously Chomsky has been taking a lot of heat from some people. And then he's also become a resistance hero to other people, which is funny. Um, but one of the ironies is that, like, Chomsky doesn't believe in – he doesn't, like, fetishize voting or the vote. Right. And I think that's something that some people don't understand, which is, like um, – it's not he doesn't hold that sacred like he doesn't think he doesn't think we live in a democracy. So it's just one thing right. that one can do. Well, um, that's that's what's similar about about my you know, I, I would I would articulate my position differently than he does. Uh, but the, will you the, probably be a lot less monotone and repetitive <laughs> no, um, when your voice would raise a little bit more the, yeah or yeah, or condescending so. no right. I, I i really i don't think that voting is the most important tool in our toolbox i i think it's 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 not i think that you know, if if you want to influence the Democratic Party, we have to we have to beat them. We have to primary them in elections, whether that's whether that's through running candidates on you know through the Democratic Party or not. Right, or not. And we have to build enough power to elect our people. And until we do that, then we're in a position where we view politicians as our enemies, who we pressure through the logic of power. To make, I mean, the the movement traditions that I come out of have won all of their gains under presidents that were horrible. So, like, I mean, it was Lyndon Johnson that signed the Civil Rights Act and the Housing Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. He was a segregationist, you know. Like, like Kennedy put him on the ticket to get the segregationist vote. You think he was sympathetic or was persuaded? No, it was the logic of power from the role that social movements were playing at the time. Similarly, you know, with the environmental movement, we got the Clean Air Act, the uh, the Clean Water Act, the creation of the 
the EPA under Nixon. You think Nixon wasn't, you know, um, in the pocket of big business that hated that stuff? Of course not. So for me, I'm like, I'm I'm fighting all these people. Fighting neoliberals is it, it actually is easier, and um, so that's the path I'm going to choose. But to me, the the idea that like my vote matters or or has any influence on the Democratic Party is not that's not my strategic. I don't think there's leverage there, and so that's why I'm like, well, if you want to do that, either way, like. Uh, it, it's just a different, I'm just having a different conversation, you know? And so I think that's, what's frustrating to me about the debate that I see happening online is it, it does seem to assume that voting is, th- this is the irony of my position. Right. I don't, I don't think voting is that important, which is why I think I, that's why I do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, anything else that you want to make sure people know about and, um, in terms of the, uh, the pledge or, or what your, the project is. And I think there were some questions for you too. Daniel Aloy says, um, that looks like a good set of promises to keep. All right. Um, sorry, I came in late. Uh, which coup are we talking about? Biden DNC taking primary Trump taking general or Twitter running interference. I mean, they're all connected at the end of the day. Yeah. So, but we are focusing on the potential, uh, you know, 2020 general election. But I mean, we already lived through the burnt the coup, the anti Bernie coup, right? Exactly. Um, and you know, we needed to organize before that. That's when exactly. we needed to sign the pledge. Well, I took a screen grab of anyway. Uh, sorry, I came in late. Uh, which coup are we talking about? Biden DNC taking primary, Trump taking general, or Twitter running interference? I mean, they're all connected. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but we are focusing on the potential, uh, po- you know. 2020 general election but i mean we already lived through the burnt the coup the anti-bernie coup right exactly um, and you know we needed to organize before that that's when exactly. we need to sign the pledge leslie will you have signed that pledge the pledge uh, to not <laughs> accept the primary <laughs> results oh I, I again i say i have not accepted the primary right exactly results. yeah you're yeah. you're legally ahead of us yeah very, uh, very interesting question uh from bill uh super question uh josh should we welcome the help of the U- of the military if trump refuses to accept the election results or is that not within the that universe of what question, you're actually. talking about I don't think we have, I mean, to me, it's like the military is going to do whatever they're, we're, we're not going to enter a coali- a strategic coalition with the military. Yeah. So I don't really know what it means to w- welcome the help of them. I think there are, here, here's, here's one way that I think I see society, which is that, especially in moments like this, which is that, um, you know, any, any administration, if you think of it, like there's like, there's a house and there's a roof, I'm making a triangle with my fingers. <laughs> and then there's different pillars of society that need to support that roof. Right. So the military is one of those pillars. So is capital. So is labor. So is the media. Right. So are the courts. There's a bunch of different pillars that hold up society. And if we can uh, weaken and pull out certain pillars out from under them, the governing structure collapses. And so there are some pillars like the military that we don't have any control over that we're not. In. And so to me, I'm like, I'm not even thinking about, I mean, I'm thinking about what the military is doing only to the degree that I'm thinking about what our moves are, but, um, but what I'm thinking about is, you know, what are the pillars that are within our control? How can we weaken them and pull them out, out from under the, the kind of edifice? And so that's part of my strategic orientation overall. And, um, and so there's, you know, but, but it is true. I mean, the, I just want to acknowledge, like, 
the big tent moment that we're in is a is a horrible moment to be in i don't want to be defending the status quo of this system but i also know how much worse it can get i've 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 supported social movements in other countries like turkey that it is a lot worse and so for me i don't want to be moving backwards and so this is like an acute moment that calls for you know um defending baseline institutions where if I can come out swinging fighting Biden come January, uh, that's what I want to be doing. And so I, I know I've digressed from, from the original question, but that's, that's what I think about that. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I, one of the nice things about, um, for me about how much, um, I've enjoyed seeing, uh, what is the thing? Like I've enjoyed how much the CIA and Trump, in some ways, the intelligence community and Trump, I like that there's that tension there um, in a way that we didn't see with Obama, for instance. So um, I do think that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've thought that. I think that the, the military, I think like the, the powers that be would not allow a Trump coup, which doesn't mean that what you're saying isn't, isn't, aren't, couldn't happen. Like all this stuff could happen, right? Like there could be violence in the streets. There could be, they could try to legally challenge the vote. Um, yeah. But well, it's like weird. I said, they're going it, to, it, it'll be, it, it would be allowed if it was legitimized, right? So I don't, I don't right. think, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I'm not. Right, but it's an important point that you say, which is that we shouldn't be expecting like tanks to be rolling into the street. Yeah. That's not what anybody's talking about. Right. But, but I understand why people would be skeptical with the language of a coup to think that we're being hyperbolic. Right. Uh, when, when what we're trying to talk about is, is the dynamics at play with more precision. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And so, and uh, Josh, somebody actually is talking about like, so when you say coup, what if there's a high tech coup? What if Twitter, Facebook, and the media decide to tell us who the president is before the election results? How, what can you do uh, to push back on that? I mean, uh, to me, I think like they they might have competing uh, de declarations mm -hmm. for who is uh, president. Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter will say, you know, Biden. Facebook says Trump. The media says uh, mainstream media says Biden. What if they have competing mm -hmm. narratives? Totally depends well, on which yeah. West, uh, which your favorite social media site. That's who your president is <laughs> for the next four years. We should definitely expect chaos and and not just with the media, but I, I do think and back to this like duopoly thing, I think it's important to understand that, of course, we have we in this country, there is a ruling class that has two parties under its control uh, and we're fighting both of them and they're not. The, the, the ruling class is also fighting itself constantly. It's not that if we view it as a monolith, we have no basis for strategy. And so it's important to understand what you were talking about, KT, uh, a second ago, <laughs> um, where, where we need to understand the fault lines and fissures within the ruling class if we're going to actually be engaging in really changing society. Uh, and so, and, and that's also true. Yeah, with divide the and conquer. Media. Yeah. There's, yeah, well, and also, I mean, tr 
and that's why Trump is playing. And I'm and I'm kind of digress. I'm definitely digressing here, but no, Trump is playing no. a different a different game than the ruling class is used to playing. The ruling class in this country is used to this bipartisan collaboration on the things that matter to them, which is a certain imperialist foreign policy, screwing over workers, et cetera, et cetera. And then they're happy to, you know, publicly squabble about culture wars and stuff like that. What Trump represents. Uh, to me is much more, you know, the way that ruling classes tend to be structured in places like Turkey or Eastern Europe right now, where it's actually like these family lines that are, you know, going after each other. Like when Trump says he wants to jail, you know, Hillary and jail all these people, he's looking to other countries where there are, there are uh, family, like nepotistic uh, units that do actually want to jail the other ruling class families. They see themselves as not just, they see them as their enemies. And that is something that is different. And it means the landscape is different. And if we pretend it's just all the same, we can't organize it in that way, you know? And so, uh, but to arc back, Leslie, what you were saying with the Twitter, Facebook stuff, I mean, that's also a good example of there may be moments when we need to be, you know, mobilizing around the media where you know, I know that there's conversations among direct action networks in the Bay Area um, around, you know, what would it look like to shut down, you know, Facebook, um, you know, what would it look like? And not, I don't mean shut it, shut it down on the internet. I mean, shut down their physical locations in order to exert pressure on them. Um, and so there's, the, that's the kinds of convert, you know, we don't pretend to have a crystal ball about the thousands of different directions that could go, nor do we have the one sort of strategic solution, but but what we are doing is offering a, a strategy framework so that people aren't just aimlessly marching in the streets to express their outrage, feel good about themselves, go home and not change anything. And so um, that, that's, that's what, what we're trying to be thinking about. No, Joshua does not love Biden, everyone. <laughs> it's so funny to be it's, it's I, I will say, Katie, it's funny that this is the first time I'm coming on your show, that it's it's like a funny first impression to make because I've been fighting these neoliberals my whole life. And so for the first time, I'm coming out to say that we need to be building broad fronts because of the moment. Um, and my whole life, I'm taking heat yeah. like to to. And, and I'm not just saying this to, to sort of defend my street cred or whatever, but, you know, when Obama was elected, like during his campaign, there was a number of us who were starting to meet and organize saying, well, people are about to be disillusioned with this neoliberal who's talking this talk. At what point can we start to organize them? At what point will we have a critical mass of disillusioned people? And when we built the campaign to stop the Keystone XL pipeline, we were um, the first civil society campaign to target Obama directly that was coming from the left. Um, and in a moment where everybody hated us for doing it, they wanted us to do anything other than target target Obama. And there were a number of other social movements that were doing the same thing at that moment, uh, including like the DACA kids who were chaining themselves to the White House and then eventually Occupy as well. Um, but it's like uh, wherever else I go, I get yelled at <laughs> or um, not not giving the Dems enough credit. So it's yeah. it, it's it's a funny position to be in to meet your audience right now. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Primarily from Chris Kelly, what what can primarily what campaigns have your volunteers participated in roles typical day how to get involved so it's it's a range of things you know people are coming to the trainings from really all walks of life which we mark as a success and so some of them don't know what to do and so the the pledge 
the pledge itself is not important. Like we don't, and that's why I said like it doesn't matter if you are if you're voting or whatever. The pledge is an organizing tool to get people to move off the fence. So there are people, for example, um, targeting politicians to sign the pledge in order to get them on the record around these red lines, saying that they're going to refuse to accept an election result. For example, that's something that people are doing who have no background in social movements, no background in organizing. For example, um, the other, you know, I, so I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, what labor is doing, and I think things are building quickly there. Mentioned also groups like Momentum, the Dream Defenders, Sunrise, uh, and what they're what they're doing is mobilizing their bases to. Um, really go to like, so for example, what Dream Defenders is doing all over Florida is there's the the supervisor of election offices, which is where recounts happen, or it's where the counts happen. And um, there are already going to be, uh, there, like the Trump administration is trying to file some kind of legal injunction to stop the counting of ballots already, because Florida has actually already cast a lot of ballots. And so a lot of it is to prevent the, these sort of like militia kind of riots from happening at these polling places to shut, or not polling places, uh, recount places to shut them down. Um, and so, you know, where it goes, and of course, the early adopters in this are also a lot of these direct action networks that are, you know, shut down DC didn't start with this, you know? And so, uh, but our, our expectation is that if things escalate, if things go this way, which again, to be clear, I'm not saying they're def this is definitely going to happen. I'm saying we need to be ready. Um, and so, uh, we expect a lot more groups to start getting engaged and asking, well, what do we do? And so there's already a framework there for groups to take if they want. And there'll also be a lot of groups doing other things as well who don't like our framework, and that's fine. Yeah, and Bill Cole says, Josh, sorry for some in the chat. Thanks for coming on. Oh, yeah, I'm not looking at the chat, so I'm only hearing what they oh, say. Okay. And so, yeah, yeah I'm not yeah. reading. But um, but it's also fun for me to get to talk. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would love to come back on and talk to some yeah. of your folks about about organizing strategy because yeah. it's a yeah. different it's it's yeah anyway um yeah. cool yeah I, I'm, I'm also like yeah bring it <laughs> yeah. yeah all right well all right. um thank you so much and i'll link to your thing uh and yeah i'll, I'll link to the pledge cool. um, all right thanks for having me on thanks josh all right later good night bye you can hear the rest of my chat with leslie lee as well as my chat with isha kurshaswamy at Patreon, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show. Follow Ali Vargas at ovargas52. Follow Joshua on Instagram at Joshua Con Russell. That's Joshua K A H N R U S S E L L. You can also learn more about the project he's working on at choosedemocracy.us. And follow Leslie Lee at Twitter. That's Leslie Lee, L-E-S-L-I-L-E-E-I-I-I. So Leslie Lee the third. Also, of course, go to patreon.com slash struggle session. The Katie Helper Show's theme song is by the band Cordova. 